0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. And I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us for worship, and I hope that if you're exploring uh, who Jesus is, and, and, and really just kind of checking this out. They'll help you feel really welcomed and invited and helped in your, your journey towards Jesus. Um, for those of you who uh, are committed followers of Christ, I, pray, I hope that this morning is going to be really encouraging and helpful for you as well. I'm just glad that we can gather together to worship God and, and uh, be reminded of who He is and how great He is and what He's done for us. So we're looking forward to our time together in the Word this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. But before I get into that, Let me just say that like in the the myriad of all the TV shows that are out there, and there's so many now, right? And Netflix just keeps churning them out, and there's just a million of different TV shows. I think that it's interesting that there are a number of TV shows that are based around the premise of people kind of radically undervaluing things of great worth right? Like there's the Antique Roadshow, there's, uh, you think, uh, Pond Stars, Storage Wars. I mean, multiple shows that kind of are all built around that premise. People undervaluing things of great worth. And I was, uh, it's just think that we do that often. In fact, this week, I, uh, this is a great thing to Google. I, I Googled uh, the best or the greatest finds ever at thrift stores. And uh, there's, some, <laughs> there's some wild stories. I, I just picked out three because, um, they were too good not to, not to uh, tell. Uh, one is that uh, this couple, Sean and Ricky McAvoy, says they loved picking out cool uh, vintage clothing at, at thrift stores. And so one day in 2014, they picked up an old West Point sweater and an Asheville, North Carolina Goodwill for just 58 cents. Months later, the two of them happened to be watching a documentary about the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi. And I think we've got this picture up here for you. They watched this this documentary, and they noticed that he appeared to be wearing the same sweater that they had found. Sure enough, the McAvoys found Lombardi's name written on the inside of the sweater, and they got it authenticated and sold it for $43,000. Can you believe that? It's like, oh, look at that. He's, he's wearing the sweater we have that we bought at Goodwill. Okay, here's another one. Randy Gallaro was looking through boxes at a Fresno, California thrift shop in 2010 when he discovered uh, old tiny type photographs that he bought for a dollar apiece. Once he got home, he started looking at them more closely, and he felt that he recognized one of the people in the picture. After some research, he discovered that one of the men playing croquet in the picture was, uh, was the famous outlaw, Billy the Kid, which is hilarious. Here's the picture. You got a picture of Billy Kid playing croquet. That's, I mean, that's awesome, right? But then it turns out that this picture was only one of, uh, one of only two authenticated pictures of Billy the Kid in existence, and so it's been appraised for, and this is wild to me, million. I mean, I don't know who's paying $5 million to get a picture of Billy the Kid, but I'm sure that the thrift shop that sold that picture for a dollar wishes they could have that one back, right? I mean, my goodness. Okay, one more. In 1992, at a local thrift store, Terry Horton spent $5 on what she thought was a huge, ugly painting. She bought it to give as a gag gift to cheer up a friend. And though the friend found the thrift shop a find hilarious, she had no room for this giant picture. And so Horton took it back home. Later, when she tried to unload it at a garage sale, an art teacher told her that she should check it out to make sure it wasn't a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> Horton ultimately hired a forensic specialist who found a fingerprint from the famed splatter painter on the piece and traced the paint back to his studio. Horton has been offered... million for this painting, but she's holding out for $50 million. Like, here's this picture. It's giant, and that's Terry Horton. She's like, can you believe that? (laughs) That makes me want to shop at thrift stores more often, right? Because it turns out people, it's it's not uncommon to undervalue things of great worth. Well, I wanted to start off with that this morning because there, there are certain passages in Scripture that I read that, 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 that voice a, 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 a appreciation, a hunger, a thirst, a, 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 a desire to know God. And like this value, the supreme worth of God. That when I read them, and I don't know, how, maybe you feel the same way. Like, I think, man, it seems like these authors, they felt something about God that I just don't know if I've, I'm really in touch with a lot of the time. Like, for example... In Psalm 63, King David declares, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. He's like, just like a man who's in the desert dying of thirst, and all he can think about is getting getting a drink of water. He's like, that's how I feel about you, God. Like, that's how valuable you are to me. Like, my whole body just longs for you. Or in Psalm 42, it begins this way. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When was the last time you felt like your soul was panting for God? I read that and think, do, do, do souls pant? Is, is that even something? But like, what, what, like you ever like, felt like this longing to know God? I read these because the passage we're looking at this morning, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, it contains one of these passages where there's a statement of just this deep desire to know God in the sense that knowing God is of supreme worth. In fact, here's what it says in Philippians 3, verse 8. Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then later he'll just make the statement, I want to know Christ. (laughs) Friends, would you say those passages describe your desire to know God? when, When was the last time you felt a thirst for God? Or your whole being was just longing, longing for him? Or when was the last time you thought, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, everything else is just like garbage? See, from what, from what I can tell, whether you're, you're a Christian, you're committed to following Jesus, or you're here just exploring faith in Christ, and you're trying to see, like, is Jesus God, and what's he like? Like, I think, I think no matter where we're coming from on that, I think we're actually all in a very similar boat when it comes to this issue. That sadly I, I find that it's it's pretty rare to encounter people who have that kind of desire to know God. Let me ask you, do you think that it is rare to have that kind of desire to know God because God is not really that valuable? Or is it because we way undervalue his worth? Like, we don't desire to really know him to this degree. Is that because we're right in, 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 our, in our really appraisal of God's worth? Or because we're way out of whack with God's worth? Like, I think that there's got to be a reason, right, when, for why the Apostle Paul would declare that he considers everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I mean, there has, there has to be a reason why Paul, you know, 30 years into his relationship with God, within, like 30 years after trusting Christ, that's when he writes the letter of Philippians, 30 years after coming to Christ. And there's got to be a reason that even at that point, his big declaration is, I want to know Christ. There's got to be a reason for that. And if we don't feel that, then perhaps we're missing something. Perhaps our understanding of God's worth and value, and the value of knowing Him, it, we're, we're you know, there's something calling, causing us to to evaluate His value His value wrongly. So this morning, what we're going to do in this passage, in Philippians 3, 1-11, is we're going to see what Paul was speaking about, what he was reflecting on, what he was communicating, that then led him to make the declaration about, you know, knowing Jesus is of all surpassing worth that makes everything else look like garbage. And here's what I think we might find. It's like one of the reasons why we undervalue Jesus, that what Paul is talking about is something that I think we often miss. Or we don't put a lot of weight on. And that's what causes us to wrongly value the worth of Christ. So, again, turn to Philippians chapter 3. And let's pick up in verse 1. And uh, kind of track his argument together. So he says this, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Those evil doers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, let me let me stop there because these verses don't make any sense if you don't have uh, an understanding of kind of the historical context of what was going on in Paul's day. So here's what's helpful to know is that there was a there was this uh, group of people known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were Jews who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the, of the Jewish scriptures. And so they trusted, like, Jesus is the Messiah. But they also believed that in order for you to be accepted by God, you had to be a Jew. You had to follow all the Jewish customs and, and Jewish law and Jewish religious practices. And so, what this group, the Judaizers, would do is that they would hear of Gentile churches, Gentiles meaning anyone that's not Jews, right? And they would go to uh, places, often where Paul had started churches, and they would go to the Gentiles there and they would say, Hey, man, it is so great that y'all have recognized that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Jewish scriptures. And that is just really good. We're so happy that you've recognized that. That's step one for you to be accepted by God. Now we're here to let you know, here are the other things that you need to do by your own power to make you right with God. See, step one is to believe in Jesus. Step two is to adopt Judaism and all that comes with it. And so all of our dietary laws, all of our moral laws, and by the way, men, um, you need to get circumcised, which is always kind of an awkward thing to talk about. Um, but like that was a big, that's a big deal for Judaism, I a mean, big aspect of their religion, because that was a kind of a sign for the men that they were aligned with God, like they were on God's team, if you will. And so they say, okay, you need to, you need to get circumcised. And so when these Judaizers would show up at a Gentile city like Philippi and and say this, like, everybody would be like, man, okay, so I thought we were accepted by God because of what Jesus did. But you're saying like, we have to do a bunch of other stuff too. And the men would start getting really uncomfortable and crossing their legs and all that stuff. Because they're like, man, I'm not sure if I'm down with that. And Paul says, man, what I'm writing here I know I've said again and again and again, but I don't mind saying it again. This is a safeguard for you. You look out for those guys. See, what was interesting, he does this kind of wordplay because the, uh, the Judaizers, and really at that time, uh, many uh, Jewish people, they looked really down on Gentiles. In fact, and they would regularly call them dogs, call the Gentiles dogs. And they were, like, unacceptable to God. They were unacceptable people. Well, Paul, he, he spins that here. He says, no, no, they think Gentiles are dogs. I'm calling them dogs. I'm calling them evildoers. I'm calling them mutilators of the flesh. That's a play on circumcision, right? And he's just like, this, these people, he's upset about what these people are teaching, and rightfully so, because the Judaizers were, they were declaring a false gospel. They were leading people away from faith alone and Christ alone for their salvation. And Paul says, You got to watch out for that. Don't buy their lies. Be on guard. Beware. Watch out. Now, what's kind of interesting and super sad is that the basic premise of what the Judaizers were teaching about 2,000 years ago is still alive and active in our world today. But it looks a little different, okay? Here's how, how it looks now. It looks like someone thinking, believing, or teaching, the way that you are found acceptable to God, the way that you are saved, the way that you're forgiven and you're brought into the family of God, the way that happens is through trust in Jesus And by doing good works or by doing religious practice, following religious practices, whether that's church attendance and reading your Bible or being generous or serving the homeless. It's it's, it's saying, okay, this is how you're made right with God. Jesus and whatever else that makes you a good person. And friends, tons of people in our city believe that. Tons and tons of people in our world believe that message. There's a good chance that there's a number of people in this room right now that believe that. That when you think, okay, what will make me acceptable to God? You think, well, yeah, Jesus, but yeah, I also need to do this, this, and this. And Paul would say, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. That is not true. you got to guard yourself against that kind of thinking. Because it's not in accordance to what Jesus taught. It's not according to the gospel. See, we can have no confidence in our flesh. And the word flesh that Paul, when he uses that here, you know, who put no confidence in the flesh. The word flesh in this case just means our own natural powers, our own abilities to make us acceptable to God. says we can't put any confidence in that. It's all Jesus. Okay, now, the, what Paul does next is, is, is kind of interesting because he says it's as if he says, like, to make that point, he, he's like, look, let me play their game for a minute. Like, the Judaizers, they, they're teaching, like, you have to, you know, Jesus plus other good things to build up your resume to cause you to be accepted to God. He says, like, let, let me play their game for a minute and then let me tell you what I have come to see. And so he says, look, Philippi, if anyone's going to uh, put confidence in the flesh, it could be me. I mean, he says this in verse 4, right? He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh or my own natural powers to make me acceptable to God, he says, I have more, which is like super arrogant sounding, right? He's like, oh, well, Paul, you're saying that you're the greatest you know, the best person has ever lived, or something like that. But, but then he lays out his basically his resume, and I think everyone who was reading it in that day would have said, "Yeah, I can see what you mean. That's that's pretty good. That's a pretty good resume." Because here's what he says: He's like, "I've been, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I love that I've had to mention that word like five times already." But um, he's, the purpose of him saying that is, is is to say, "Look, this means that I have been a, a Jew since birth. Like, I'm not a convert." and in the judaizers eyes would have been a big deal right he said okay so that's where i'm coming from and i'm of the people of israel of the tribe of benjamin which carried weight because he was uh, the tribe of benjamin was one of only two tribes of israel 12 tribes of israel that stayed true to king david so he's saying like in this sense i'm like like not only just a jew but from the tribe of benjamin i'm i'm like all you know, really racially pure again in the eyes of the judaizers that's who he's speaking of. And then he says, in addition, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Meaning that he was not a Hellenistic Jew who had adopted the culture, the Greek culture that day and spoke Greek. He says, no, no, no I, my family, like we're Hebrews of Hebrews. Like we speak, we speak the Hebrew language. We, we haven't adopted the Greek culture. Like I'm culturally pure in that sense. And then he says, in regards to the law a Pharisee, meaning of, of the religious elite, The upper echelon of religious people. That's me. And then he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church, meaning that before he became a Christ follower, he was zealous in stomping out anything that he thought did not line up with Judaism. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, meaning as a Pharisee, he kept the letter of the law. He made sure. He dotted all the I's across crossed all the T's like he did everything he was supposed to do. He says, no, if anyone's going to have confidence in the flesh to make me acceptable to God, like I've got a really good resume. Now think about a resume for a minute. What's the purpose of a resume? Like a resume is your argument on paper for why you should be accepted into something, Right? It's your list of merits that you hope will prove that you are acceptable to school or to a job or whatever it might be. And he says, okay, here's, here's my resume that I could put confidence in that would, I think, if I put this to God, I get this resume in God's hands. He's going to look at it and say, oh, man, that's impressive. You're in, right? I accept you. That's the idea that the Judaizers had. They said, you you, got to trust in Christ. That's good. Recognize he's Messiah. But you have to have a really good resume also. You have to add to that. You have to do good things, religious observances, obeying God, and then you can get in. And here's what Paul says next. He says, what I've realized is uh, whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. Now, if you've checked out, all right? If you're like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. That's a lot of ancient history. Come back here because, listen, how I opened the message talking about, like, do we value Jesus appropriately or perhaps are we undervaluing the worth of knowing God? What Paul says here, is the thing that causes him to talk about why, beyond anything else, he wants to know Jesus. Like, this argument right here is the thing that lights his fire to know Jesus above all else. So, so you know, check in and listen, because here's what he's saying. When he says, uh, whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ, he, he, he means, uh, i come to realize that all of my good accomplishments— all the things that I would include on my resume as an argument for why I should be accepted by God, all my gains, I now consider them being in the loss column. Like not just like a loss, but a negative on my record. So he put it another way, he's saying, what I thought were credits to my account were actually deficits. And here's why. It's not because the things on his resume were bad, per se. Many of those things really good things. But it's because he had at one time believed that those were the things that would cause God to accept him. And what he had come to realize is that his confidence and his good works and his resume and all the ways that he obeyed, that his confidence and his good works were actually the very thing that was going to cause him to be rejected by God. I like how the pastor Warren Worsby uh, puts it. He says, uh, like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. It was not bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was the good things. that He had to lose his religion to find salvation. Or as the author uh, and pastor Tim Keller would put it, he'd say, Paul realized he needed to repent not just from the wrong things he had done, but also the right things he had done for the wrong reasons. See, when Paul says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ, Paul is saying, What I realize is how. Desperately I needed Jesus. See, I I came to realize that the, the good things I was I was doing was actually keeping me from recognizing how bad I needed Jesus. Because I thought, yeah, Jesus and this good resume, that's what gets me in. But then I've come to realize, no, no, that's actually what gets me rejected. Because I'm adding to. I'm thinking I play a part in my salvation. I do something to make me acceptable to God. And he says that's actually keeping me from being acceptable. Because if I think I add anything to it, then I'm out. But when I realized that what I was adding was actually of no value in earning acceptance from God. Then that made me realize Jesus is all I have to make me acceptable. And so I desperately, desperately need him. It's not Jesus and. It's only him. He's my only hope to make me acceptable to, Jesus, to, to God. Friends, here's what this looks like in our lives, okay? Okay. This is going to be a little dangerous for me to say, but listen in. For some of y'all, attending this worship service is a loss. And you are thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm having to listen to you. But don't, don't think that way. Um, for some of y'all, attending this worship service is a loss. It's a, it's a detriment for you. Not because attending a worship service or attending a church is bad. It's, it's not. I'm, I'm a big fan. I think that it's a good thing. However... If you think God is going to find you more acceptable to him because you are here, then being here is keeping you from recognizing how desperately dependent on Jesus alone you are to make you acceptable to God. The same can be said about any other thing. I mean, uh, reading the Bible and praying And serving the homeless or the refugees or giving your money away or avoiding sins. If you think by doing any of those things, you're making yourself more acceptable to God. Building a better resume for why he should let you in. Then those things are to your detriment. What you think are gains are actually loss. Not because they're bad. And they're not bad. Those are all great things. But if you think that you will be accepted by God by, because you have done those things then you fool yourself and it's going to lead to your rejection because there's nothing that you can add. There's nothing you can do in your own power that makes you acceptable to God. And when you realize, okay, I don't do those things to make me acceptable all I do It's trust in the grace of Jesus alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to make me right with God, accepted by God, let in by God. And then I do all of those other things, whether coming for worship, serving the homeless, giving my money away. I do all those things, not in order to get something, but in light of what I've been given by Jesus free salvation, acceptance by God. Then I'm moved, compelled by how he's loved me to go and serve, not to get, but to give in light of what I've been given. Paul says, this is what I came to realize. I desperately need Jesus. He's my only hope. He's the only one that can possibly make me acceptable to God, which is why he goes on in verse eight to say what he says, what I read earlier, what he says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And it's been well noted. If you've been in church for a long time, you've heard this before. But that word garbage in the Greek is a very vulgar word. It's the only time it shows up in all of Scripture. It's a word that's like you know, a curse word specifically about animal excrement. And I would say the word, but all of y'all would leave today. And the only thing you'd remember about this message is that was the Sunday that Jake cussed for the stage. And so I'm not going to do that because I don't want that to be the thing you walk away with. But it's the equivalent or worse than saying, like, consider everything just dog crap compared to knowing Christ. (laughs) You think, wow, Paul. He goes on to say, and being found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, righteousness meaning that which makes you acceptable. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, see, why did Paul consider knowing Jesus to be the greatest worth, of greatest worth to the point that he would consider everything else a loss or everything else dog crap? It's because no one else, nothing else could make him acceptable to God. That's why. Nothing else could even come close. Nothing could make him righteous before God other than being found in Jesus. That he realized that his only hope when he stands before the creator of the universe one day, his only hope to hear God say, Come in. I accept you. You're mine. His only hope was Jesus and his faith in him. He says, because of this, here's here's what's of surpassing worth. It's knowing him. For no one and nothing can ever do for me what Jesus has done. My hope is not found in anything else. I desperately, desperately, desperately need Jesus. So everything else is a loss compared to him. He goes on to say, verse 10, I want to know Christ. This word know means personal, like intimate, experiential knowledge. It's not like I want to know about. It's like I really want to know him, right? And again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think it's worth repeating. Like Paul, he's 30 years into his relation with God, his relationship with Jesus. 30 years prior, Jesus shows up on his road to Damascus and calls him out, right? He's like, okay. So this is not, he's not like, okay, I want to, like this is a hunger that's lasted for 30 years where he's like, I just, I just all I want is to know him more and more and more. And here's the truth, friends. Because Jesus, God the Son, is infinite, we'll never get to the bottom of him. And we will continue. There will always be more of Jesus to be had, to be enjoyed, to know. And Paul says, in light of who he is to me, what he's done for me, the only hope that I have, all I want is to know him. I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to experience him. He starts listing off different ways that he wants, or aspects of Jesus he wants to know and ways he wants to know him. He goes on, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Like meaning, I, I want to experience his power within me, making me into a new person, making me more like him. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, I want to know that power. And I wish that he had stopped there because it's like, yeah, I want to know that too. Power, it's good. But he he goes on. He maybe gets a little carried away because next thing he says, you know, I want to know. Yes, the the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him and his death. It's like, whoa, Paul. Like, I know, you, like Jesus is surpassing worth better than everything else. But like, you want to participate in his sufferings? Like you be like him in his death? Like what? What are you talking about? Paul says, no, no, like. I want, to, I, I want to know Jesus to the greatest degree. And so, like, he, just as he suffered for me, like, I want to experience his presence when I'm suffering for him. And any of y'all who've suffered for Jesus, you can, you can say, like, there is an intimacy that comes in that moment when he's all you have. And Paul says, I want to experience that. That's how badly I want to know Jesus. Even becoming like him in his death, like, even, even to, to to die for him, like he died for me. I want to know him to that degree. And guys, this was wild to me. There's so many people that, I, that I've talked to, and I have been guilty of this at times as well, where it's been like, yeah, I want to know Jesus if, by knowing him, I'll be happier. I want to know Jesus if, By knowing him, I'll be more blessed. I want to know Jesus if it leads to me, you know, having a better life or things working out for me. I want to know Jesus if, I want to know Jesus if, if, but, but Paul said, no, no, I want to know Jesus even if. It means I suffer for him. I want to know Jesus even if. It means I'm dying for him. Even if I'm being persecuted on him, is I, I, worth it. Everything else is loss. Everything else is garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's all I want. I want to know him. Friends, could it be that one reason why we undervalue knowing Jesus is that we have failed to realize that there is nothing we can do to make us acceptable to God? Could it be that one of the reasons we undervalue Jesus is that we don't understand how desperate we are for him? He is our only hope. He's the only one we can have confidence in to make us righteous, to make us acceptable to God. See, when you realize how desperately you need him, then you will begin to value him and see his surpassing worth above all else, for nothing else can do that for you. See, I... Or could it be that we undervalue Jesus because we take what he's accomplished for us for granted? That if we fail to remember that we have no other hope before God except for him, then, then perhaps we will undervalue Jesus and just take what he did for us for granted. Or could it be that we undervalue Jesus because we, re- we fail to realize what he has amazingly secured for us. Like an eternal life with God, friends. The full acceptance of God now and forevermore. The more that it comes home to you and to me, what Christ has secured for me, the more I will be blown away by what he's done. And the more I will want to know him To know the one who's loved me to this degree. To know the one who's served me to this degree. To know the one who's come through for me in a way that nothing else and no one else, including myself, ever could. I want to know him. If you don't value knowing Jesus above all else, either you're right. Jesus isn't that valuable. Or you're appraising his worth all wrong. Friends, I, I encourage you this week to wrestle with that. And if when you're wrestling with that, you recognize you're undervaluing his worth, and yet you still don't desire to know him to, the, to this degree, then I want to encourage you to begin to do what Paul does here in this passage. Reflect on how Desperately you need Him. Reflect on what He has secured for you and reflect on what He did to secure that for you. Take time. Reflect on it. Remember it. Meditate on it. How desperately you need Him. What He secured for you. The acceptance of God. And what He did to secure that. We're going to end this message by giving you a chance to even begin that by taking communion. Then we take communion as as an opportunity to remember who Jesus is and what he did. What he did to secure for us the acceptance of God. Therefore, it's it's grace alone through Christ alone. Grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone that has secured our salvation, made us acceptable to God. And that grace was given to us through Jesus' his death on the cross. That he lived the life that we were supposed to live, a righteous life. But then on the cross, he died the death we deserve to die for not living a righteous life. He took our penalty upon himself. He was forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we don't have to be. So that we can stand before the Father and not hear that you're forsaken. Get out, rejected. But to hear, no, come in, my son and my daughter. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what He accomplished on the cross. When His body was broken and His blood was spilled, He made the way for us to be made righteous. Love how Second Corinthians five twenty one puts it: God made Him, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He loved and served us to that degree. He rescued us from our sin and from God's rejection that we could be brought in. And we can't add to that, and we don't need to. Let us see how desperately we need him. Let's rejoice in how he, what he's done for us and what he's secured for us, that his value in our eyes would at least begin to head in the right direction to match his real value and his real worth. Friends, let me also add, if you're here today and and you'd say, okay, you know what? I'm one of those people who thinks and has thought, like Jesus is a good example, or like he died for me and that's good, but I also have thought I, I have to live a certain way. I have to follow a set of rules. I have to avoid certain sins or whatever it might be. I have to do something to make me also acceptable to God. If that's where you've been, I really want to encourage you, even right now, for you to recognize that's, that's not true. And to see how desperately dependent on Jesus you are. And for you to respond in faith to say, God, I trust that Jesus And Jesus alone is what's going to make me acceptable to you. All my trust is in him, not him and these things. In him alone, he's my only hope because he died for me and he rose again and he made me righteous in him. I want to be found in him. friends, You can tell God that right now. In fact, if you've never done that, then I would encourage you to use this time of communion instead of coming and taking communion to actually stay in your seat and talk to God about that. And perhaps even right now you would tell him, and I'm putting all my hope now, all my faith in him alone. He's my only hope. He's the only one that can make me acceptable. Friends, let's, let's praise him in song. Let's remember him in communion. and May his value Increase in our eyes. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Yeah, we, God, we just absolutely don't deserve your acceptance. For nothing we can do can ever remove the stain of sin, and all that all that we do out of a hope that we can earn your salvation. It just causes us to to not depend on Jesus. And God, I just pray that you would humble us in that. And we would recognize just how desperately we need Jesus. And then as a result, that we would value him much more appropriately. That we would see... Just how great he is and his surpassing worth. And Lord, you would drive in us a hunger to know him. God, will you bring, will will you change us in this? And will will we confess our sin for not valuing Jesus appropriately? And God, will will you give us a hunger to know you? For those here today that are wrestling with the truth of this, that are afraid to let go of their good deeds as a means to make themselves acceptable to God, I I pray you would help this truth come home to their heart and they would realize it's Jesus and Jesus alone that makes us acceptable to you, that makes us righteous. And Lord, in that they would find a freedom and a joy that's only found in Christ. And thank you for what you've done for us in sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your death on our behalf. May we remember that now and may it move us to worship. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.